0: Hello, and welcome to Decent Jobs on a Living Planet, an environmental podcast where we talk to people, from experts to activists, about just transition and what it means from a Scottish perspective.
1: The term just transition originates from trade unions, so what does it mean? We know that fossil fuels are fueling the climate crisis and we need to move away from them.
0: However, fossil fuel industry is a major player in Scottish and UK society and economy. There are 30,000 people directly employed in the UK offshore oil industry, a further 70,000 in domestic supply chains, and thousands more living in communities heavily reliant on
1: the fossil fuel industry. How do we make a transition away from fossil fuels in a way that is just for workers, communities and the planet?
0: With the global pandemic and economic turmoil, the context of discussions around just transition are hugely different now. While jobs in many industries are looking precarious, jobs in the fossil fuel industry are more precarious than ever and workers' rights have come to a forefront. Talking about a just transition is therefore more important than ever. In this episode, we speak to Neil, a former oil and gas worker turned environmental activist. This interview was recorded at the end of last year. Although things have changed a lot since then, we think this interview gives some important insights into the concept of just transition. Hello Neil. Yeah, hello ladies. So can you tell us about your background and your career working in the oil rigs?
2: I was a, a student, I suppose, in Aberdeen and, uh, yeah, in early 70s when I first came across the oil industry. I mean, the, the, I, I suspect that many, well, not suspect, many young men who wanted a bit of adventure and would see this coming on their doorstep. I mean, I've been brought up in Bucky. A fishing town, uh, 60 miles away. So, you know, the idea to sea wasn't a, uh, wasn't unnatural to me. So, that's that's where I first started. I left university, went offshore, um, and uh, this was 1973. This is when there was virtually nothing going on. You know, it was, there was a very 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 early days of exploration. I went back to. To university and completed a, a sociology degree, which I've never used. And of course, it was after that that I I uh, eventually went back offshore in, in the kind of mid seventies and uh, spent the rest of my life there.
1: Could you tell us a little bit more about your kind of average day as an oil worker? What kind of things are you doing on the rigs?
2: Yeah, well, <laughs> average day. I mean, it's it, it's over forty years. The average day forty <laughs> years ago and the average day. Uh, this year are pretty different, plus the fact I spent the last 20 years of my life in the Norwegian North Sea, uh, which which is different, which has got a very different culture. All right, let's get some of the basics. Well, you'll be working 12-hour shifts, so you're going to be sleeping for eight hours. So uh, there are are four hours in which you will be eating uh, two meals. You're going to eat your dinner. When you come off shift, you're going to Eat your breakfast before you go back on shift, which leaves you a few hours to recreate. So, in the early days, we had projectors and movies, and we would uh, wrangle over what we would what we would watch. Um, latterly, of course, it's uh, satellite dish TVs, and people were a lot less social in the sense we didn't we didn't all get together and uh, watch the same movie, and the, the banter was completely different the work would be very different depending on what job you do offshore i mean if you're a if you're a drilling hand well the drilling hand back in the, the early 70s was a horrific job you know it was hard very very physical uh, very dangerous and i don't mean just the kind of da- well I, I do mean just the, the normal dangers like with the, you know the danger of losing fingers or, or breaking limbs and stuff like this never mind the the underlying danger which is there for everybody whether you're, you're outside or not You know, the danger that you're sitting connected by a hole to potentially uh, an atomic bomb's worth of, of energy anyway uh, today uh, well many of the jobs are, are fairly sedentary you know guys work indoors all day sometimes there are still obviously deck crew and there's still obviously drilling crew um, it can be It is long, it's a 12 hour shift, everybody does that. Um, It can be very boring, it can be fairly physical, it can be. I don't know if that's typical.
0: (laughs) Well, you've kind of spoken a little bit about the working conditions. Yeah,
2: again, they've changed over over the years, and they're totally different in Norway from they are in the UK. I mean, Norway was very heavily unionised, and conditions were generally much better. Uh, the jobs become more mechanised, so it's not as heavy, it's not as damaging. Um, on the other hand, you know, the the, mo- the single most uh, negative aspect, you're living with your bosses really, mm. you know, and, and the discipline is easy to keep. They they, they have got power of, you know, they, they can sack, it's not a problem. So it's very easy to, to browbeat people into either silence or or uh, complicity with the backward nonsense that goes on. I mean, oil companies are not progressive progressive organisations. Drilling contractors, the, the, the guys who really police a lot of the, the, the North Sea, they're not either, you know.
1: You mentioned that Norway was quite heavily unionised. Um, with the many, like, trade unionists when you were on the oil right like Were you a member of a trade union?
2: Yeah, yeah, oh, always. But... Um, in the early days i was in the was very very early days i was in the transport and General workers union when i went back in the in the mid 70s it would be uh, the national union of seamen i was in and, and and you know i made an attempt there to try and get the national union of seamen to to reinvent themselves as the the, the uh, union for offshore oil workers it wasn't to happen uh, at that point they they were still battling against the the sort of, uh, there was a globalisation of the the Siemens industry, for a better word. There was a a, a massive de-skilling and casualisation and destruction of wages and stuff. But it it wasn't until uh, The Piper Alpha blew up in uh, 1998. It was after that there was a a, a major um, explosion of anger. It was... um, Yeah, led by the the OILC, the the Offshore Industry Liaison Committee, uh, a group of uh, trade unionists, mostly from the construction engineering side of the industry I was involved in drawing, um, ably led by a guy called uh, Ronnie MacDonald. And uh, there was a, a real effort made to end the complicitness, I suppose, that the unions to that point had shown to the employers. Mm. It didn't work. It didn't work. OLC failed, really, you know, but eventually were eventually absorbed back into the official trade union movement. They're now part of RMT, which was the old National Union of Seamen that I'd been in all these years before. Um, but it's never really unionised, the British sector, the OLC. It would be at very, very best, it would be something like 25% unionised. In Norway, it's, if it's not 100%, it's very close.
0: Is that just because people aren't joining unions?
2: No, a big part of it uh, lies in the, the, the way the trade union movement itself reacted to the to the North Sea. Instead of putting aside their sectional differences, they really entrenched them. And, you know, they were prepared to hang on to bad union agreements for small sections of workers. And eventually, you know, they, they, and, and as it stands today, they have sweetheart agreements. The official unions have sweetheart agreements with the employers. They were brought in to stop OILC representing workers. You can see it was well paid, relatively well paid. And you can see there's a lot of a lot of reasons why guys might be persuaded to keep their heads down, say nothing, don't join the union, don't get... Of course, it was policed pretty radically. You know, they could tell your employer not to send you back in the rig. I mean, you wouldn't be directly... Necessarily directly employed, your employer might not be on that rig. You know, you would be sent onto the rig from from uh, a company, a service company. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you went, when you went off, if you had blotted your copybook, if you had challenged what was going on there, they could say, "Don't send him back on here; send somebody else." So your employer was then forced either to send you somewhere else, or as as uh, which has happened to me, or eventually to to uh, sack you.
1: I've um, heard that these days a lot of the contracts we were working on bigs are, is quite precarious work, is that true?
2: I'm not nearly as, as uh, up to date with what's going on in the British sector as, as possibly I should be um, yeah, I, I'm guessing there are short term contracts I mean, there's, for example, before I you know some years ago when I was still active in the in the, uh, the OLC the, as, the, as the branch secretary of the RMT's branch, which the OLC became. I mean, at that point, they were introducing uh, zero-hours contracts for offshore workers. Uh, they were contracting out labour, you know, based in in, uh, in overseas dominions, which didn't have to be British law. You know, they weren't paying national insurance and stuff like this with workers. Yeah, it's, it's pretty dodgy.
0: I want to ask you about the communities that are supported by the income from oil and gas and how would you say they're shaped by this industry?
2: I suppose if you're talking about communities dominated by oil and gas workers, you would be talking about northeast of Scotland. Bucky, my, my home town, would, would be one I, I suspect that is as dominated by offshore as you get. But it's not like the mining communities. It's not like you know the miners in Fife before the last transition, you know, when uh, they were absolutely wiped out in the transition from, from uh, coal to gas. I mean, um, you know, interpersonal relationships and family, well, one of the big negatives about of offshore work is that it's offshore. When I first went offshore in this, this 1973, it was two weeks on the rig, one week off. That changed that year. Uh, it was then two and two traditionally for a long, long time. Except in Norway, where they fought They were organised and they went two on, three off, and eventually two on, four off, and I spent the last 10 years of my life working two weeks on the rig, four weeks off. That's a perfectly reasonable way to live. You can have a life on on a schedule like that. In the British sector, as far as I can tell from the guys that I speak to, the majority of guys would now be on three and three schedules, and that is awful. That is absolutely horrendous, and we'll have Uh, all problems that people living away from, living and working away from their families gives you. There's a big negative there.
0: Tell us about your journey to becoming a climate activist.
2: You know I spent my entire life in the oil industry I, I spent my entire life fighting the oil industry, but not from the standpoint that it was, you know, that it was destroying the planet, because it never occurred to me really. Did I see pictures of polar bears stranded in icebergs? Yes. Did it worry me? Yes. Did I turn the, yes, I turned the page quickly. But did I think that it was down to the oil oh, industry? No, not really. Not really. It's very difficult. It's like fish don't necessarily think the sea is wet. You know, it just is what it is. In, in Norway it was relatively easy. You could, you could see what you wanted. You could speak. It's not the same in the British sector. Honestly. There's a lot of fear. A lot of people trying to make sure that they don't they don't get dug out the next the next calling, but in Norway there was a little bit of a discussion would go on. The guys would laugh. They, they were utterly cynical of it, government because government used to boast this is the Norwegian government used to boast how green they were, you know that they were uh, producing all this power from hydroelectric, and uh, they, they wouldn't build gas power stations and stuff like that. And the guys would going, well. Where well, the fuck do you think the guys the Is that we, you know, they instantly know that this is just bullshit. But there was no, you know, there was no opposition here. I mean, no, we weren't sitting around thinking we we're killing the world. You know, it never, never came up in the conversation. I was fighting other battles, you know, different battles. So at what
0: point did you kind of begin to think that maybe there was
2: a link between the work you were doing and the climate crisis? Well, really, I was retired by then. I mean, I retired in, 19, in 20... Fifteen, I think, and it was only really when Extinction Rebellion was—I think it must have been that October—a year past October. It was the first I, rem- I remember seeing TV. The bridges were being blocked in London, thinking that nah, sounds interesting, you <laughs> know, without any real understanding of what it was. And then when they when they began to explain that it was Extinction Rebellion, I began to think about these these issues. And so it was only really through Extinction Rebellion that that these issues. That I, I was aware of, of the environmental movement. I hadn't really been listening to them. I do uh, give money to Greenpeace. I always thought they were—they were quite interesting, you know. I, I like the way that they, they fought the oil industry and stopped them dumping the Brent spar. Mm. You know, I like the way they, they climbed onto oil rigs on occasion to stop them uh, drilling in the Arctic. For example, if you'd if said to me, "Are you of drilling in the Arctic?" I would have said, "Oh, definitely not." But it would have been based on the idea that I know what shit we threw over the side. I know. I mean, I've done it. I've been involved in it. I was so. But I, But this idea of greenhouse gases and the way that they were uh, being emitted and building up and changing the the atmosphere and creating uh, global warming, Well I didn't really know. I I, I wasn't unaware of the concepts, but I had really no idea uh, how how important it was. And, and of course, you're working in this industry. I'm not looking, I wasn't looking for reasons to diss to, to, the industry, I wanted to change the industry, I wanted the workers to, to, to take control of the industry.
1: So I'd like to ask you now a bit about Just Transition and kind of what what is your understanding of that? What does Just Transition mean to you?
2: My first concept, my
1: first idea of this
2: concept was obviously, well look, the guys are i have got to be transitions to a new industry. I mean, my understanding is that if you keep producing hydrocarbons and keep burning them, it will keep
1: destroying the, the, the environment. We will, we will eventually end up crashing and
2: burning. If you stop producing fossil fuels, you have got to transition. New words, you see, transition. You need to transition to to renewable energy. If you if you want to shut down oil production in the I, I think it is absolutely necessary that the first people you go to are the oil workers and and you, you need to say it, we're, we're in support of you here. that doesn't mean you're going to fall into your arms you're going to get a massive reaction from oil workers but indoor jobs you know do you know how long it took me to get this job do you know how many years I put in here do you know, what, what, you know, do you know how much money I get where am I going to get it's not easy but you but you must begin to speak to the workers. And it's complicated by the fact that, that the trade unions have been so woeful. And, and I say this, I, I spent my life as a trade unionist. I, I, you know, I'm not suggesting that somebody else is being woeful. Um, you know, collectively we were woeful. So you, you have a situation where we need to speak to the workers. It's very difficult to see our uh, own organisations uh, Organising effectively, you know, one of the big problems when we come to talk about uh, when we come to talk about just transition, you know, where the workers would go, is that already, you know, the the, uh, the offshore wind industry is is growing massively, but it's a, it's already dominated by private capital, based on on a, a model which uses foreign labour, based on not starvation labor rates, but you know, far less than the, the uh, minimum wage here I mean, half the minimum wage and of course you, you know, if you want to begin to talk about uh, a just transition that's got to be tackled head on and and the unions don't seem to be as far as I can see don't seem to be in a position to, to confront that the other part of, of a just transition that, that, that I'm, I'm, I've come to understand is that we are in a very very privileged position in the UK where we could we could find and or find the, the finance for and find the the energy resources to replace hydrocarbon fuels. Maybe we could develop wind and wave and solar to the point where we don't need to use uh, Nazi power. That's for sure however it hammers the profits of these major you know, multinationals. I'm not suggesting that's not the case, but we could do it. But there are other places around the world that are not in the same situation. If there has to be if there has to be hydrocarbons uh, produced during this transition, then it, it's not here that should be done. So there are two aspects of a just transition that I understand. We do need to confront oil and gas the oil and gas industry and the facilitators, i.e. the governments. I mean that's a year into the rebellion and as yet you know there there has been virtually no emphasis on challenging oil and gas production in the north sea and this is where greenhouse gases come from and this is where where our share of greenhouse gases come from if the plan and this is the plan if the plan is for maximum economic recovery of the north sea i.e produce every barrel you can Make a buck of it, and they think there's 20 billion of them left. If the plan is to do that, to drain the, the reservoirs, then what is the plan everywhere else? What's the plan in the Gulf of Mexico? What's the plan in South Island? What's the plan in Norway? It's exactly the same. So there's a there's a huge confidence trick being played here, and the government, and the Scottish government, are playing along. It's no wonder, people oil and gas. I mean, for years and years and years, the industry has has tried to stop any information coming out. Nobody knows about it. I mean, nobody in Scotland tends to, to know more about it. We did the rebellion in London and speaking to people there. I mean, there was absolutely no knowledge that, that the oil and gas industry actually existed, or that it played any significant role in producing the, the, the emissions that that uh, the UK are actively responsible. If we ignore it. We're really ignoring what's at the root of the global warming crisis, as I understand the science, (laughs) and I'm not a climate scientist, obviously. Do I want, you know, it's a movement. Do I want everybody to do what I'm doing? Do I want everybody to think that that, uh, the main fight is to uh, take it to the oil employers and to convince the oil workers to do it? No, no, I don't think that's what a movement's about. I mean, people are in this movement because are motivated by all sorts of stuff. They love animals. They 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 love nature. They don't want to see insects disappearing off the planet. They they see all the problems with agriculture. They see the problems with food, you know, meat production. But but if we don't stop using fossil fuels soon, these questions will never ever be resolved.
1: So, the last question is kind of about um, like appetite for change amongst. The- oil workers and the wider community which are like supported by the oil industry. Yeah, I mean,
2: first first and foremost, I mean, you know, I was three years out of the industry before I really had the time and the space and the the opportunity, you know, because XR kind of exploded onto the scene and made it impossible, but, but, you know, you've got to assume that most of the guys there will, will be, will, will have a very similar, and I don't think it's a reluctance, but, you know, a similar relationship with these ideas as, as I've had. It's not going to be at the forefront of their, their, their thoughts, you know, it's not. Except that they, of course, they're living in, in the planet where, where they're, they're seeing the, 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 the Amazon burning and, the, and they're seeing the wildfires in and America and, and they, they're looking at their grandchildren. I mean, it does make you think differently. Do are, are these, are these oil workers have so found? Yes grandchildren, children, a lot. I don't think there's very many shortcuts to this. You know, we know where they go. They, every one of them goes through Aberdeen to get on a rig. That's that's what happens. So you need to speak to them either on the trains, at the heliport, in the pubs in Aberdeen. That's... What do you say to them? I, you know, it's just... You need a discussion anyway. But, but is the best possible scenario. Well, that this movement that XR represents takes a hold and people began to think begin to think seriously in the industry itself and you know I don't know where that could lead nobody nobody apart from oil workers could shut down the oil industry anyway I mean well unless unless society you know unless there's an absolute enormous explosion in society and people go fuck this we need to get you know the government is going to have to do this but your best bet are that workers themselves go we need to get out of this we need to find other places we need people to organize a, a just transition
1: and we don't want to be working for five dollars an hour in the, the
2: renewables industry offshore we need this industry to be properly uh, regulated It's big steps but our first step is surely going to be confronting the oil industry just to say to them we're here you know that you know you've managed to escape you've, you've got under the radar from now and then we'll see maybe that will have an effect on the, on the workers that might have effect on the community in Aberdeen. Yeah. I spoke to the XR guys in Aberdeen, and and they're going, whoa, you know, how do you confront the question of oil in this town which is dominated by oil? They're going, Yeah, a good point. On the other hand, you see, if you're not in the oil industry and you're in Aberdeen, it's a nightmare. I mean, you're, you're paying premium for everything, and you're on wages which are not oil industry mm-hmm. wages there be a lot of resentment about the oil industry there. I mean you don't want that resentment to be to be vented against oil workers. But, you know, I think it could possibly be redirected towards the oil industry. It's not everybody's happy with the way that oil has come into that city and, and kind of dominated it uh, financially and culturally. We've done very, very little, you know, there's not a, there's not an oil industry hospital or an oil industry museum or an, even an oil industry orchestra. There's nothing. They've, they've given nothing. We the really walk out of there, which could be a lot sooner than anybody uh, predicted, be, you know, all to the left are a few shoddy company buildings that will fall down.
1: This podcast was brought to you by Young Friends of the Earth Scotland, a network of young activists fighting for climate and social justice. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. This podcast is supported by the Erasmus Plus programme of the European Union, with thanks also to Scottish Communities Climate Action Network.